Assyria. For millennia, it has been at the center of empires, from the Assyrians to the Romans, and from the Umayyad Caliphate to the Ottomans. This Middle Eastern country sits on the ancient Silk Road, trade routes that crisscrossed Eurasia from Europe to China. For generation after generation, it was famed for wealth, art, culture, and science. Damascus, the capital of modern-day Syria, is said to be the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. But today, Syria has a very different image. Today, when we think of Syria, we think of war, the human misery, the brutality, the destruction of those ancient sites that make this country so unique. To understand where all this began, we have to get back to 2011, and that moment of immense global significance when huge anti-government protests ignited across North Africa and the Middle East. They became known as the Arab Spring. In Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and others, authoritarian dictators toppled one after another. In Syria, after a heavy-handed response to small pro-democracy demonstrations, protests exploded. It felt like President Bashar al-Assad could be the next one to fall. But the regime again responded with violence and triggered an armed insurgency. And before long, the country descended into full-scale civil war. With a dizzying array of armed actors with different aims and allegiances and at staggering humanitarian costs. The Syrian civil war has also created a perfect brewing pot for illicit activities from the production of synthetic drugs to trafficking of both humans and arms and state-backed actors are deeply involved in these activities and there is little oversight. So how did the war change the organized crime landscape in Syria? Who are the criminal actors today and how are they profiting from the conflict? And why do some people call Syria a narco state? Well, these are some of the things we're going to find out in this episode of the Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thelay Win. In this series, we'll take a deep dive onto the Global Organized Crime Index and take a look at some of the biggest organized crime threats facing countries and regions around the world. And in this particular episode, we're going to look at Syria and the nexus of conflict and organized crime with Laura Adal, senior analyst and head of the Western Asia program at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Laura is also one of the brains behind the Global Organized Crime Index. When the Arab Spring happened in 2010 in Tunisia and then spread across the MENA region, uh, Syrians were inspired to revolt against what they saw as a tyrannical rule of the Assad family, uh, leading to the Pandora's box of chaos and, and death that we've witnessed over the past decade. And since the war began 11 years ago, Syria has become basically unrecognizable. Um, and the war itself has sort of evolved from what was once a people's revolution against a repressive regime to what it is now, a protracted conflict in which over the years, um, as time went on, the country has become a playground for many different actors with many different strategic priorities and interests to interject themselves into the war. And so the result is hundreds of thousands of people have died, millions have become refugees, and millions more are displaced. The country's economy has been decimated, and to a certain extent, the country has become an international pariah, at least from the West's perception. 
importantly, the original goal of removing the Assad regime from power, of course, uh, was not met. So Bashar al-Assad remains the president. And to a certain extent, this objective has been lost and given way to external interests and priorities. Today, with the help of foreign interventions, the system of cronyism and corruption and ruthlessness remains. Um, along with a whole slew of, of different facets to the conflict that have repercussions for foreign policy and security at the regional and international levels, sadly at the expense of the Syrian people themselves. Now I want to go back to you know what you originally talked about, your speciality of this nexus, because I think maybe now is an opportune time to bring in this link between organized crime and conflict. Moving out a little bit from Syria, just in general, can you just tell us how one feeds the other? Organized crime and conflict interact cyclically and converge in a number of ways. Organized crime can affect all stages of a conflict, from contributing to its onset to extending its duration, um, and in the end, posing obstacles to its resolution and achieving peace. So, for example, on one hand, where there's conflict, we typically see shortages of goods and services to local populations. Uh, we see social, economic, and security institutions are weakened because often the state's attention is diverted to the immediate threat of war. And in some cases, the state's authority itself may be delegitimized. And it's these conditions that provide opportunities for criminal actors to come in and fill these voids and engage in illicit activities at comparably little risk. And so in conflicts, we often see a rise in the smuggling of licit commodities like food and other basic necessities but also illicit commodities like drugs and arms, and of course, the transport of humans themselves as people try to flee uh, to escape the violence. Now, at the same time, the profits from organized crime provide conflict parties with the economic, uh, but also the social and political incentives to carry on fighting. So when fighters from any side of a conflict engage in criminal activities, their engagement helps supply the conflict with weapons, with ammunition, and with revenue. Uh, which in turn makes it that much more that much more hard to end the conflict and to achieve peace. Let's zoom back into Syria. Now, under this index, Syria ranks very high on criminality and pretty low on resilience. Um, can you sort of explain what those scores mean? Yes. So all countries under the index are assigned two scores, a criminality score, which looks at the pervasiveness of a select number of criminal markets and criminal actors, and a resilience score that assesses the existence and effectiveness of 12 resilience measures that reflect different parts of society that a country would or should have in place in order to develop a holistic and sustainable response to organized crime. Now, both criminality and resilience scores are scored based on a scale of 1 to 10, where 5.5 is the midway point. Um, for the criminality component, so looking at markets and actors, a score of one represents the best possible scenario where the illicit market or actor type doesn't exist. Uh, and a score of 10 represents the worst possible scenario where the illicit market or actor type has an extremely negative influence on all parts of society and or state structures. Now, by contrast, for resilience, that one to 10 scale is flipped. So a score of one represents the worst possible scenario. In other words, the resilience measure doesn't exist. Uh, and a score of 10 represents the best possible scenario where measure exists and is extremely effective. Now, for Syria, the overall criminality score sits at a 6.84 out of 10. Um, and when you break down that score into its subcomponents, we see that criminal actors' scores for the country are quite high, with an average of 7.63, uh, 
Um, and this is what's driving up serious criminality compared to criminal markets at a 6.05. Um, the country ranks fourth for criminality in the Western Asia region, um, sixth in Asia more broadly, and 13th in the world. So overall, very high levels of criminality. For resilience, the country has a very low resilience score at a 1.88 out of 10. So none of the 12 resilience indicators that look at things like political governance, criminal justice, economic structures, and social protections score above a three. Um, the country is ranked last in Western Asia and the continent of Asia more broadly, and is ranked 190th out of 193 countries worldwide, with just Libya, Somalia, and South Sudan scoring lower in resilience. In Syria, what types of organized crime are we talking about here? Of the 10 criminal markets that the index looks at, for Syria, the highest scoring illicit economies in descending order were identified as first the synthetic drugs trade with a score of 9.5 out of 10, tied in first place globally with Myanmar, uh, followed by arms trafficking at a 9 and human trafficking and smuggling both at an 8.5 out of 10. Um, of course, there were a number of criminal markets that were evaluated by experts as relatively insignificant in the Syrian context, so things like uh, flora crimes, the cocaine trade, and wildlife crimes. Um, but the presence of those main criminal markets in the country that I mentioned are just so pervasive that they drive up that market score. And I think really it's those that reflect the realities of a country that has been engulfed in conflict for over the past 10 years. Um, so for example, looking at drug trafficking, the trade has evolved into part of the war economy. And as it expands, the potential for addiction and abuse by civilians and fighters um, who've been traumatized by war increases along with it. Same thing with arms trafficking. It's also closely linked to the war and has essentially weaponized the region and fueled violence um, while also emboldening criminal groups. Um, and then, of course, we see the displacement of large swaths of the Syrian population due to the conflict, which has spurred the smuggling market and left millions vulnerable to exploitation and trafficking. Um, and so it's these markets that have had the biggest direct impact uh, not only on Syria, but the wider region, and I would argue also Europe more broadly. I want to now look at the other side of the coin, which is, you know, the resilience part and civil society in particular. Uh, in many countries, even in conflict zones, civil society often plays this watchdog role when it comes to things like corruption and organized crime. Is that at all possible in Syria? Well, the short answer is no, or at least the media and civil society community that does exist in the country is very, very limited in their roles. Uh, so Syrian media is owned and controlled by the state. Um, and even those media outlets that are private are associated with regime members. So that leaves virtually no room for investigative journalism into things like corruption or objective reporting on anything, uh, let alone organized crime, um, especially if state actors facilitate or are involved in these activities. We have to remember that the governance structure in Syria as set up by Hafez al-Assad remains and is rooted in this idea of absolute loyalty to the regime with no space for, for critical debate or critique. Um, now, in areas of the country that are not held by the government, the degree of media freedom varies. Um, but like regime-held territories, the media is under intense pressure to support whatever uh, dominant faction governs that particular area. Um, and all across Syria, journalists are faced with physical dangers. So their roles as watchdogs is non-existent. 
Now, as far as civil society, uh, its very weak presence in Syria is due to a combination of, you know, state ambivalence for certain social issues like victim and witness support, um, but also a highly restrictive government enforced vetting procedures uh, to ensure that there's really no chance of opposition. And although there have been attempts by the regime to implement things like drug rehabilitation centers um, and that there are some NGOs that work on issues that are deemed neutral, um, so things like community awareness and humanitarian causes, they remain very limited in their effect. We also have to consider that the country remains at war um, and that the conflict is not over. And so there isn't, there hasn't been much of an opportunity to have civil society get a foothold and to build their reach. Mm. So a lot of the work at the moment, um, some of it is just responding to the humanitarian needs uh, rather than more institutional sort of watchdog and 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 looking at that kind of role. Right. Um, now, at the beginning, you talked about how complicated Syria, you know, conflict is and and also this wide variety of actors that are involved. And, you know, that reminded me of of seeing one of these maps that sort of explained um which actors were involved in the war in Syria and the different alliances and allegiances. And to be honest, it was possibly the most complicated and confusing map of its kind that I've seen. So I'm asking you a pretty difficult question, I realize. Can you just very briefly take us through who are involved in this war and how? Uh, yes, so you're right. Over the course of the past 11 years, there have been so many conflict actors in Syria that have come and gone and reorganized themselves depending on the evolution of the conflict. Um, but generally, if we look at who's been involved in the most simplistic terms, uh, it's best to look at the actors through three layers. Uh, so let's call the first layer the local layer. So we're looking at actors that are in Syria itself. Um, and here we have, again, in the most simplified terms, uh, the Assad regime, the rebel forces, of which there have been hundreds, so each with different objectives, uh, but that are generally united in their opposition to the regime. Um, and then there are the Kurds, who are also anti-regime, but have the separate goal to create a breakaway Kurdish state in, in northeastern Syria. The second layer can be described as a sort of regional layer. And here we have other players from the region who back the different local actors, either through direct engagement in the conflict or through supplies and so on. Um, and so first looking at those aligned with the Assad regime, the primary players from the region are the popular mobilization forces in Iraq uh, and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, those backing the rebels include Sunnis in Iraq and Lebanon and to a certain degree, Jordan. And then finally, those that back the Syrian Kurds are primarily fellow Kurds from, from neighboring Iraq. At the third level, this is what I call the external level, um, and these are players who are outside of the region, but who have supported the local and regional players at various times throughout the conflict. So again, supporting the Assad regime, we know it's Russia and Iran, uh, supporting the rebels, we have Turkey, the Arab Gulf states, and to some extent the United States, and then supporting the Kurds, again, we, we have the United States. Now, amid all of this, a, as a separate piece of the puzzle to add to the complicated mix, um, we also have terrorist groups, particularly ISIS, who, as we know, had, has the ultimate aim of creating a literal Islamic state out of the ruins of Iraq and Syria. Now, today, clearly, the number of actors and their roles in the Syrian conflict has dwindled to varying degrees um, since the regime has now regained control over most of the country. ISIS's territorial holdings have been pretty much eliminated. And there are just a few pockets of the country uh, left uh, that are controlled by rebel and Kurdish forces. 
Um, that's a very concise and really helpful uh, explanation of of all that different actors in the war. Thank you, Laura. Um, now, one of the things I also found was in the you know the global organized crime index. Um, it said that many of these groups that are involved in the conflict are also linked to organized crime. Can you sort of explain how? Yes. So for criminal actors, as the second component that makes up the criminality scores under the index, three out of the four actor types for Syria were assessed as having a significant to severe influence on society, uh, signifying their heavy involvement in either facilitating or directly engaging in illicit activities. Um, And even though each of these actor types differ in their structure and in their allegiances, um, they all have their hands in the proverbial pot when it comes to organized crime. Uh, leaving a stabilized and often violent environment for civilians in the country and the region more broadly. Now, state-embedded actors are the most obvious, um, and this reflects the degree to which members of the Assad regime and associated militias engage in corruption and organized crime. And here, this actor type scored a 10 out of 10 for Syria, so the highest in the world for that actor, um, and tied only with North Korea. These actors have uh, major control over criminal markets in the government-controlled territories, uh, particularly drug trafficking, and provide aligned criminals with weapons, uh, with security cover, transit routes through their checkpoints, and protection from prison when it serves them. This is followed by criminal networks at a 9.0, um, and these are comprised of local smugglers who may have drawn on their historical ties and knowledge of the local area to to expand already existing historical illicit trade activities during the conflict. Or it could be, you know, entrepreneur type actors in the form of of paramilitary groups, of of tribal militias and family businesses with varying degrees of organization, you know, moving licit and illicit goods throughout Syria and across its borders. Um, And these networks are prevalent in kidnapping and extortion, human smuggling, trafficking, uh, and of course, drugs and weapons trafficking. And the level of violence varies from group to group. Um, across all of Syria. And then the index scores foreign criminal actors at a 7.0, and this reflects any non-Syrian criminal presence in the country who work with other criminal groups to engage in criminal activities. So foreign criminal groups are considered to be the strongest among Syria's criminal networks and are made up of actors that work with both the Syrian state and domestic non-state criminal groups. Most well-known example would be the Iran-backed regime-aligned Hezbollah from neighboring Lebanon who are actively, allegedly active smuggling and promoting drugs across the border. Um, But we also see Syria's opposition forces that have been supported primarily by local Sunni tribes, again, situated along the border uh, of neighboring countries, as well as Western or Sunni majority Gulf countries acting as proxy powers who provide monetary, political and material support that has, of course, significantly influenced the loss and gain of land in the process and subsequently affected illicit flows. And so we see from these results a reflection of a country that is awash with different criminal influences, but with actors that are embedded in and acting from within the state apparatus, uh, heavily involved in the criminality dynamics of the country. Mm. So was organized crime always a part of the conflict, considering, you know, like you said, state embedded actors play quite a quite a prominent role there? Or did that um, aspect come later in the conflict? Well, it's important to note that organized crime has always been a feature of the region. The production and transport of commodities outside the legal framework has always been around and is part of a 
social and economic fabric of the region that isn't bound by the constraints of politics and borders. So it's very likely that illicit activities have been part of the conflict in Syria since its inception. Smuggling routes used to transport supplies and foodstuffs and other essential commodities to conflict actors uh, were likely in use since the beginning. But I think as the conflict dragged on, what's happened are two major developments that go hand in hand. That is that organized crime has expanded exponentially. So routes have popped up and shifted um, either to avoid violence or to enable it. Um, and the movement of illicit commodities has overlapped with the smuggling of other goods. Um, for example, before the war, Syria had comparatively fewer arms than some of its neighbors, uh, but that's changed as weapons from previous conflicts in the region are recycled and move into the country. Another example is that, you know, with the breakdown of, of the rule of law in the country, this has allowed the production and trafficking of drugs to accelerate. Um, and so we see, we started to see a variation in flows, but also a rise in the volume of flows. Now, another key development is that the number of actors that engage in organized crime has grown significantly. As the war in Syria progressed, another transition took place um, in that local smugglers and traders have had to make room for new actors to engage in illicit activities um, as more warring groups recognize the strategic advantages of controlling cross-border flows. Um, and so in a sense, trafficking became more formalized. Can you also tell us a bit more about the modus operandi of the criminal actors over the past decade, meaning, you know, since the conflict started? How, you know, how do they gain legitimacy and power? And how do they balance, you know, violence and the need for support? Um, in, the, in the context of conflict, pre-existing governance dynamics, so in this case, the Assad regime's governance structure, was, was challenged through violence as opposition groups sought to overthrow the regime. Uh, now, in doing so, they tried to establish their legitimacy in the territories that they gain. And violence is essential in not only gaining that power and territory, but also maintaining it. Now, what's key here in Syria, and I imagine elsewhere, is that violence alone is not enough to establish legitimacy. What is also needed is control over economic activities, so both licit and illicit, um, to ensure that there's enough revenue to keep the war going, but also to provide services to the populations under their control. Conflict actors can do this by using violence to secure these resources, either through directly engaging in organized crime or uh, imposing taxes on criminals themselves so that they can continue to carry on their illicit activities, but are forced to pay criminal rents to whatever faction controls the territory. Um, and this sort of scheme of violent governance extends to the broader communities themselves. So conflict actors may impose extortion schemes on everyday citizens, uh, whereby payments are made to these armed groups in exchange for uh, protection or the provision of other services. And particularly where there's a lack of state presence, these sort of tactics have become accepted and acknowledged as you know, simply a form of taxation by armed groups in exchange for, for basic services. Um, this means that those engaged in criminal activities can, over time, be perceived as legitimate political actors. Um, and this perceived legitimacy, in turn, can translate into popular support, um, while also undermining the state's authority and complicating conflict resolution. Now, it's important to note that these methods are, are not just limited to non-state conflict actors. They, they also extend to the state. So where government actors struggle to maintain power, they join non-state groups in competing for resources and regaining uh, territorial control. 
Um, and so what we've seen in Syria are instances where the government, for example, has weaponized healthcare support by withholding it in territories that are held by the opposition. Um, and so all of this ends up further sowing division and unrest, uh, which again, in turn, allows criminal actors to expand their activities and influence. One of the things that you also said earlier was about how, you know, organized crime had always been in the region, even before, you know, the the war started 11 years ago. Could you paint us a picture of Syria before the war and Syria as it is now currently and, you know, where organized crime fits in there? Um, and in other words, I mean, I guess, you know, we want to know whether the conflict has changed the nature of organized crime or vice versa? Sure. So organized crime in Syria has gone through many transformations over the years. Before the conflict, although organized cr- criminal groups in the country competed for profits and control of business stakes, um, it was always clear that the state was the ultimate authority in terms of governance, that the government was, or at least appeared to be, in firm control of the land, um, of the public services, and of the population, either through violence or otherwise. And during this time, organized crime was carried out in parallel to legitimate, formal, and legal economies. But since 2011, the weakening of the Syrian regime through the loss of its territory has, as I mentioned, created a platform for both state and non-state actors to compete for authority, legitimacy, and control, sometimes under the guise of, of religious or ethnic identity. Meanwhile, we have those regional and external layers of actors that I mentioned, um, and so their interventions based on political alliances with local groups, provide support, whether that is monetary or otherwise, further affecting organized crime um, and these ideas of legitimacy and power. Um, A good example of this is uh, sanctions that force local actors to rely on illicit flows to secure supplies that they need or weapons that they need to assist a particular warring faction, um, and then which inevitably ends up on the black market. And so organized crime has become deeply entwined with the war economy. Um, allowing conflict actors to buy weapons, to pay combatants, uh, to provide social services, and to establish institutions. And so the result is that organized crime actors and violent political actors have become one and the same. Now, fast forward to today, the majority of Syria is now back under the government control, and much of the fighting has winded down. But what's left is a country that has been totally decimated in terms of its economy, its status in the global arena, um, and in terms of its population. And so what remains are these organized crime dynamics that have been embedded in the country for so long that engagement in illicit activities has really evolved beyond being part of a war economy and is fundamentally the only way left to make money and to keep the country running, so to speak. Wow. And there is this particular drug, right, uh, called Captagon, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, um, that Syria is particularly known for. Can you tell us what this is and, you know, how big a role it plays in that whole drug trade? Yeah, so so Captagon with a lowercase c is a recreational amphetamine and actually a misnomer for the pharmaceutical stimulant fentanyl named Captagon with an uppercase c. It was actually developed in Germany back in the 1960s as a medicine for children with attention deficit disorder um, and acts as a stimulant for improving awareness and concentration and for boosting energy. Um, And over the years, production of the drug gradually shifted to Eastern Europe. um, But after a crackdown in the 1980s, production shifted again eastward into Turkey and then Syria um, and has since developed into a recreational drug, usually containing a mix of amphetamines, caffeine and various fillers. 
and that has become extremely popular in the region, uh, particularly in the Arab Gulf. Now, while captagon trafficking in Syria occurred long before the war actually broke out, uh, its production and trafficking has accelerated significantly during the war. Um, and over the years, there have been reports of conflict actors from all sides in Syria, um, including ISIS members, taking the drug to, to, to boost their fighting abilities. So Captagon today is now the number one product of Syria's drug economy, where it's exported by land, sea, and air to the Arabian Peninsula, uh, and in some cases to Europe. Syria is basically the world's number one producer of the drug, um, not only because it's relatively easy to make, but because there's easy access to precursor chemicals, um, and of course the country's access to ports and established smuggling routes to, to move drug consignments throughout the region. In, in Syria itself, uh, Captagon tablets are very cheap. A uh, pill can be bought for less than a dollar compared to its retail price in the Gulf, where a single tablet could be sold for more than $14. Um, so just to give you an idea, the margin of profit that's being made here. Mm, and that's also why you were saying that, you know, the drug-related economy is actually, you know, in, in, in the billions. Do we know how big it actually is? And, and, and where does all this money go? Yeah. So the Captagon market alone is estimated to be a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, I think the most recent estimate put it around 2.93 billion US dollars. That's more than triple Syria's legal exports of 860 million. The Captagon trade essentially exploded as a result of the conflict and is pretty much under total control of the Syrian state, including businessmen with close ties to, to the government and Hezbollah. Um, Captagon pills have been seized in neighboring countries like Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, uh, but also across the ports of countries all along the Mediterranean and as far as Germany, Romania, and even Malaysia. But as I mentioned, the largest consumer market is in the Gulf. So it's likely that these seizures reflect shipments that were in transit to the Arabian Peninsula. One of these seizures included a bust in Italy in 2020, which has been described as the largest bust of amphetamines in the world, where officials captured 84 million pills worth about $1.1 billion linked to the Syrian port of Latakia. Um, and again, this was during the height of the pandemic. So just to give you an idea of how enormous the market was and is, um, despite travel restrictions and a decade of war. In fact, the trade has gotten so big that it's actually spilled over into neighboring countries like Lebanon, where uh, production has been on the rise, um, and through Jordan and Iraq as transit corridors en route, to the, en route to the Gulf. In Lebanon alone, for example, the Captagon trade is estimated to be over a billion dollars, while uh, in Jordan, officials are reporting a steady increase in the quantity of pills seized. Uh, with that amount doubling in 2021, which is double from the year prior. It's estimated that as much as one-fifth of the drugs smuggled in from Syria are now consumed in Jordan. But more generally, according to reports, the number of pills seized has increased every year since 2017. Um, and it's not like the profits of these markets are, are being funneled back into the Syrian economy. We're seeing many reports saying that the proceeds of these activities are, are going directly into the pockets of those that run the trade. And so uh, it's a concerning trend that really risks taking over the the entire region. Well, yeah, those numbers are quite staggering, right? And just Captagon alone, in terms of almost three billion, and that's just one drug. Although, yes, that is the the the, the biggest, you know, in, in the market in terms of what Syria is known for. That. Yeah, those numbers are, are staggering. Now, one of the descriptions of Syria that we've seen these days is that it is a narco state. Can you sort of explain why that has been assigned by some to Syria? And do, do you agree with that title? Is that accurate? 
Uh, well, uh, Narcostate is a country whose economy is dependent on the trade in illegal drugs and whose government institutions essentially run the illicit drug trade. Um, and I think there's a very strong case to be made that Syria has indeed become a narco-state. Over the course of the war, as the regime slowly regained its territory, it also grew to have a monopoly on the drug trade um, as a major money-making machine, um, especially since Syria's formal economy has been totally obliterated. Now, when we saw international sanctions being imposed on key Assad associates, um, it became almost obvious that you know, they would turn to and invest in the drug industry that was, that was bringing in so much revenue. And indeed, it's been reported that the illicit drug industry is being run by those closest to Bashar al-Assad, um, including members of his own family, and production and distribution is reportedly managed by the regime's military unit. The whole drug industry in Syria has become a multi-billion dollar operation. And so it's essentially dominated and overtaken any of the country's legal exports. So today, Syria is one of the world's biggest producers of certain drugs. And sadly, there isn't really any reason for, for Syrian officials to stop it. Of course, Syria, you know, doesn't just smuggle drugs, right? They also smuggle human beings and they traffic in human beings. And it's known as a human trafficking hub. Again, was that something that emerged from the war or, you know, has tr- human trafficking you know, always been there as part of the the illegal activities in the region. The human trafficking market um, encompasses a whole range of illicit activities from, from forced labor to sex trafficking. So the market almost certainly existed in Syria, um, as it does in pretty much every country in the world. But what the Syrian conflict has done is really fuel an enormous human smuggling market as people try to escape the war. Um, and in that process, become expo- exposed to exploitation. So, for example, people are often smuggled voluntarily across Syria's borders, um, and then along the way, they may be facing financial hardship, homelessness, or uncertain futures, which then leaves them vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, and so, over the past decade, human trafficking in Syria has been closely linked to the smuggling market. Now, today, the UN has estimated that since 2011, approximately 6.8 million people have had to flee their homes in Syria as refugees or asylum seekers. And another 6.7 million are internally displaced in the country. And so there's an enormous portion of the population that, that are at risk um, of finding themselves in situations of exploitation, both, both within Syria and abroad. Now, it's impossible to mention, really, uh, Syria's human trafficking and smuggling without talking about the closest neighbors who have really bared the brunt of this exodus. Um, in the early years of the conflict, there was a free flow of Syrian nationals moving into neighboring countries, uh, particularly Lebanon. But as time went on, just the sheer number of people coming in um, have placed, has placed such a huge burden on health, housing, and economic infrastructures. And in responding to that, the bureaucratic requirements introduced by host countries to mitigate these flows has made it more difficult for Syrians to enter, leading them to seek more dangerous ways to escape. Uh, which in turn exposes them further to trafficking. To make things even more complicated, we have, of course, the pandemic. As countries in the Middle East and across the world impose more restrictions at borders and within countries to limit the spread of the virus, this has only made things worse. So people are more likely to pay higher prices to smugglers to to match the heightened risk of crossing the borders. Um, And even once they're in the host country, COVID restrictions have further isolated them, um, leaving them at the mercy of, of traffickers. Would it be correct to then assume that in you know the conflict has probably accelerated or or intensified regional trafficking flows? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it would be really difficult to overstate the extent to which the Syrian conflict has reshaped the region. Um, over the past 11 years, there have been clear trends of illicit trafficking of different commodities expanding and spilling over into Syria's neighbors. And the impact of, of that has essentially weakened the fragile status quo in those countries um, and led to a spread of violence and instability. In the Levant, prior to the Syrian war, civilians you know, long relied on smugglers for basic foodstuffs, cigarettes, and other illicit goods for their daily lives. And there was a relatively open but embedded regional smuggling system that was generally made up, you know, of, of local tribes, small scale smugglers and so on, who who knew one another and trusted one another and who knew how to to move things across borders. But what the conflict has has done is really shift the region's economic and governance dynamics. And so illicit flows across shared borders with Syria have expanded and basically exasperated pre-existing and you know, somewhat latent political, economic, and social tensions. In Lebanon, for example, which is now on the brink of collapse itself, uh, sectarian divides have been deepened um, as the different factions of society become aligned with those in Syria. Um, and with that, it fueled more um, smuggling of illicit goods like weapons and drugs to prolong the conflict. Same thing in Iraq. Iraqis have suffered the consequences of their own war uh, and the rise of religious extremist groups who themselves have engaged in organized crime to fund their activities. And, and even in Jordan, which is comparably much more stable, um, the increase of these illicit flows have the potential to destabilize what is seen by many as a, as a neutral anchor in the region. And since the outbreak of the pandemic, um, illicit flows throughout the region continue and tensions have only risen amid the perceived inadequacy of, of government responses. So what does the future hold for the criminal actors and, and also in terms of the conflict now that you say, you know, some of the conflict has, win, uh, you know, winding down um, and, and, and it's back under the state control. How, how do you see this changing, you know, for, for, for both the conflict and the criminal actors, let's say in the coming year or five years down the line? So, you know, given the high stakes at play within Syria, the way things look now, it's unlikely that any of these criminal actors are going to go away anytime soon. Just as the corrupt systems of patronage have plagued Syria for over 50 years now, it's extremely likely that the status quo will remain, which is a continuation of this competition and buying for power by local stakeholders through violence and control of illicit flows um, who are then backed by regional and external actors. Rule of law in the country has largely dissolved as a concept, and revenue sources continue to be harnessed and weaponized to support the strategic objectives. And uh, the pandemic has only reinforced these power-seeking dynamics. And this is especially true since the original reason the Syrian war began, that is to overthrow the Assad regime, has been lost or at least eclipsed by these other strategic objectives. And of course, the regime remains, while at the same time, in opposition-held territories, non-state actors have begun to gain legitimacy among locals, which means that both sides appear to have solidified their roles uh, and are likely to remain long after the, the conflict has ended, unfortunately. Though I want to emphasize here that the war remains ongoing, and so the final balance of power can't be fully understood yet. Thanks so much for a fascinating discussion and for educating us on all that's going on in Syria. And thanks for coming on the Index. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Index and for Laura Adal for joining us today. If you want to read the country profile for Syria, 
It's available in the podcast notes, where you can also find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index. The Global Organized Crime Index lists 193 countries around the world and scores their levels of criminality and resilience. It's interactive and available to everyone for free. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode where we will be discussing that European country that is synonymous with organized crime, Italy and the Mafia. We'll look at how a country can have high levels of criminality and yet high levels of resilience to it. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thilaya Wen. Thanks for listening.